Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, Con Ed courses and events. Details can be found on the website. And this podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and Physiotherapist himself at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. He is also a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? How much, man? Excited to be here, as usual. Living the dream. That's it, man. We have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. John is a powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor for our newest course, the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. How are you doing, John? Doing great. It's been a good day. Your beard is looking great. Again. <laughs> and we're extremely excited to welcome to the show Dr. Franco Impelzeri, who is a professor in sport and exercise science and medicine at the University of Technology in Sydney and has been putting out extremely valuable research for decades now in the realms of athlete health and performance. Franco, thanks, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you all for the invitation. No, it's it's an honor on our end. And it, so can you tell our six listeners a little bit? We have more than six. Eh, we probably have like five now. A little bit more about yourself and what's led to your current tracks and interest in the field and ultimately to the pinnacle of your professional career now being on the Clinical Athlete podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, my, uh, my history is a bit complicated. I start working for a professional cycling team in a research center. And so I was basically, I was focusing my activity on training athletes. At one point, I needed some information that I couldn't find in the literature. I started to, to do research by myself in that center. And at that time, I started my career as a researcher. So I would say I'm underlining this because my career was based on the, the necessity to find answers for training. I didn't start my career as an academic, so I didn't publish because I had to publish. I published, I made researches because I needed some information that I couldn't find. So this probably is the main difference between me and other researchers because I'm very connected to the, to the field. Uh, after 10 years, uh, I moved in orthopedics, so I started to work in clinical setting. Uh, the idea was to stay there for a few years to learn new things, to apply in sports science. At the end, it came out that I stayed 10 years because I like, and I work in clinimatrix. So I start to measure not only objective uh, components of physical uh, of physical activity, but also, uh, let's say, perceptions. So I start to work uh, with questionnaires, uh, trying to understand the pain, function, things like that. And I have to say that that was another 
uh, important step of my career because I learned a lot of things in other fields like medical, uh, physiotherapy and so on. And this opened a bit more my mind. So basically I'm the combination of a coach, a researcher in sports science and a clinical researchers. So one year ago, I came back in sports science. And so now I'm full, my activity is full time dedicated to sports science research. That's a bit my, my background. That's great. Well, That's I, great. I was first introduced to your 2003, 2004 paper on session RPE. So we wanted to get you on the show to talk about all of those things, training load monitoring and the, and the whole gamut. And it was that first paper titled use of RPE based training load in soccer was where I first heard your name and, and started to be turned on to your work. And then a lot of the stuff that you were doing with, with fatigue and, and these types of things, it's just been really, really great. And you've come out with a couple recent pieces that we wanted to make the framework of the discussion today, the one of which you're the lead author on, and the paper is titled Internal and External Training Load 15 Years On. And it's a commentary. The purpose of it was, it's commentary. The purpose of it was to clarify and refine the framework and the definitions of internal and external training load. These aren't new concepts in the field of sports performance, thanks largely in part to people like you, but they are more of a hot topic in the fields of rehab and injury risk reduction and healthcare as the worlds of, you know, health and rehab and performance start to reconcile more and more. Can you give a general overview on the concepts of internal and external training load variables and their significance in regards to monitoring training load? Yeah, um, I introduced with some colleagues this concept now 15 years ago. I'm quite old, actually, because the one of the main reason why we introduced this concept is that uh, we wanted to underline the importance of the actual physiological stimulus. Uh, it seems a, a, a minor, a minor uh, issue, but actually, in, in our opinion, especially now, it's a big issue because people usually focus on the exercise. They don't focus to the uh, effect that this exercise can induce on the body. And that's why, for example, you see a lot of people discussing about specificity, functional training, things like that, which is fine. But sometimes we forget that we don't have to care too much about what we see, but we have to focus our, our attention on what we don't see. So the physiological the stimulus that we actually induce on the body. Otherwise, in a few years, we will just reproduce training. Actually, this is, this is happening, happening in training. We are just reproducing the competition. So it's like to say, if you want to train for a competition, just compete, which is obviously not necessarily true. Sometimes it can be even true. So we introduced this concept to, to differentiate two important components when we train. One is the exercise. The exercise that we use is used for inducing a change and a response. The, the response that we induce is the internal load. Now there is a confusion because, for example, if you look at the heart rate variability or even questionnaires for measuring fatigue or things like that, are considered indicators of internal load. Based on what we suggested, these are not indicators of internal load. These are indicators 
of the response to the internal load. And this, it seems more, uh, let's say, a, a just a semantic issue, but it's important because the in the last uh, in the last uh, uh, commentary, what we introduce is the concept of internal external load in, in in the training process, starting for from understanding the physiological or the limiting factors of the performance. So once I identify the factors on which I want to, to act with the, with the training, at that point, I, de I define the exercise that allow me to induce those training, training adaptations, let's say. So the, the, the whole concept is based on this, the importance of the, the, the actual stimulus. Of course, there are situations in which it's difficult to measure the internal load, and we know that, but uh, even uh, men the mental approach should be in this way. So I have all, always to question myself if what I'm doing is inducing the adaptation that I need to improve the performance. And the other point in this, this commentary is important is that we don't have to forget the performance because sometimes, uh, especially as a researcher, so we just look at the mechanism of something, but not always we measure the performance. Uh, uh, what I forgot to say is that when I was in, in, in Switzerland, I trained for uh, five years the national fencing team uh, for the Olympic Games. And I came back a bit on the field and I realized sometimes how the science is far from the necessities of, of the coaches and people training athletes in the real world. So the the... I wrote the commentary because I wanted to underline these important issues. Uh, we don't have to forget that the training, the exercise, is a way to reach something. It's not our goal. I can, I can hear. That's because I had myself on mute. There we go. Okay. So if we further differentiate, I'm looking at Jared and, and John and they're all shaking their head. I'm like, what the, what's behind me? Um, <laughs> we're looking to differentiate these two terms. External training load is what you're, is the program in regards to what you're putting on the organism, like um, weight on the bar or volume or velocity or something like that. And internal load is the response of the external load, the body's response to that. What jumped out at me in your paper was what you had already touched on was that a lot of markers that people interpret as internal training loads are actually what you called surrogates. And so they're actually a response to the internal load, like heart rate variability, heart rate recovery, hormonal response. I'm assuming RPE would fall into that category as well as a surrogate. No, no, can no. You, because, okay, good. Cause can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, no, because the uh, when I I design a program and I don't know I ask my athletes to run four minutes at ninety percent of maximum heart rate, this induces a, a psychophysiological response. This psychophysiological response, for example, can be measured using session RP using RP the perceived exertion because perceived exertion is generated centrally and uh, respond to the intensity of the exercise. So the, the, the perceived exertion is a measure of something happening during the exercise. So the difference between the internal load and other surrogates is that the internal load is a measure during the exercise. Everything I measure after the exercise is a response to the internal load. So the internal load can be the heart rate while, 
while running can be the the, the muscular activity during uh, weightlifting, for example, and and this is something happening during this internal load. Of course, induces also a, a response after training. So if I train, I can have fatigue. Uh, I can have an alteration artery variability, things like that. This is just a response, which is important because tell us how the body is responding to the internal load. And this is also subjective. That's why sometimes it's better to measure because with the same external load, I can have different internal load. Because if I ask you to, 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 to bench press 100 kilograms, for, for me, it's close to the maximum. For, for uh, your mates, are probably they are warming up with that. So... Uh, the, 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 the load is the same, but the internal load is different. Even if they work with the same uh, internal load, uh, the response can be also different because the response depends, for example, on the period. You can have other stressors, things like that, nutrition. Otherwise, with the same exactly internal load, we would all have the same adaptations. But the adaptations are influenced by several things. If you are tired, what are you eating? If you are eating enough protein or whatever. So that's why I differentiate because internal load is a response only during. The rest is a surrogate or is a response to internal load. I hope it's clear now. Is It's clearer. Is SRPE though, because it's my understanding that SRPE is actually more valid if you test between like a 15 to 30 minute window after a workout because you'll rate a higher SRPE right after the workout. So if we're defining a surrogate as a measure after exercise, wouldn't SRPE still fall into that surrogate category? Yeah, you lost some of my papers actually <laughs> because we have demonstrated that if you measure immediately after, is exactly like measuring after 30 minutes. Uh, the idea to measure 30 minutes after the, the, the completion of the training session came from Carl Foster that uh, was afraid that the, the last part of the training could influence the overall rating. But in, we did in team sport, we compare the rating immediately after 30 minutes and even after 24 and, 40 and 48 hours. And we found that the, the, the perception is not influenced by the distribution. So in the, in the study that we, we, we did, we um, manipulated the training so that you had the high intensity phases at the beginning, in the, end, in the middle or at the end. And we didn't see any, any, any influence. So it responds very well during and immediately after the, the, the effort. And uh, you have to consider that the session RP is a variation because the, the perceived exertion is commonly used during exercise. And this is how it was traditionally introduced in the world of physical activity. And the session RP is a combination of this measure with the volume. It's a global indicator, of course. It's not very, you cannot have uh, very detailed information. Uh, as, as I wrote in the, in the commentary, there's no gold standard. Uh, the, the main important thing is that you understand the limitations of what you're using and you take these limitations into account. Because otherwise, uh, I mean, it's not a fight between heart rate or RPE or lactate or whatever. Any, any information can be usable. For example, heart rate, I use heart rate with cyclists 
lot of years, have also some uh, variations. So, for example, if you are tired, and even if you exercise at the same external load, you can have a lower a lower heart rate. The same for lactate. If you are following, for example, a keto, ketogenic diet, you can have uh, lower levels of glycogen, so you have less lactate. Actually, this is a this is a, an issue in some studies showing a, 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 a better response to ketogenic diet because they found a lower lactate. Actually, the lactate was probably lower because without glycogen, you don't produce lactate. But the, the perceived exertion, for example, in that case is higher. So if you combine all these indicators, you may estimate the physiological stimulus, the actual physiological stimulus. And is that what you guys, you recommend having external and internal load markers to, to track as they, you know, the, to, to see the interplay? From a clinical standpoint, let's say a, a low-tech clinic or they're, they're rehabbing their athletes, but they don't have a bunch of gear and, and GPS monitors, which I think you have an opinion on and all these high tech things. Would you say that session RPE, if we're just talking internal load, uh, maybe session RPE load. So S session RPE times time, multiple, you know, SRPE times the number of minutes of the session is a, is a decent starting point. And then whatever external load marker is valid and uh, relevant to the goal? I, I think that if you don't have anything else, it's fine. It's better than nothing. Of course, the more you have, the better. That's, but that's the question. When we developed this session RP, it was because uh, uh, usually when we think about uh, studies and if you read the studies uh, done on professional teams, we think that the world is made by professional players. The, the reason why we start to develop the session RP for team sport is because not all teams, let's think about the semi-professional, amateur, or even a recreational, they don't have any instrument. Of course, for people like me that can have whatever I needed, the GPS, uh, session RP, lactate, they can measure whatever I want. It's relatively easy. But when you move in the real world, there are not only the professional athletes with uh, billions for buying whatever they need. So the session RP was also a, a, an easy solution, an easy answer to the necessities of several uh, trainers. So I would say to, to try to answer that, the session RP or RP, RP is a good, uh, is an acceptable solution. Uh, commonly in, in uh, for example, in, in physiotherapy is used uh, for, as uh, to prescribe the intensity of the exercise. What we are suggesting is to also use uh, to quantify the total training load. And we did that, for example, and we published a paper on a professional, a case study on a professional uh, soccer players where uh, during their rehabilitation phase he had the rupture of the Achilles tendon. During the rehabilitation we monitor with the session RP for example and what uh, we we wanted to do with this method is to see if we uh, this guy could uh, cope with the uh, pre-injury level of training. So once we found that this guy was uh, uh, able to tolerate the amount of training that was able to tolerate before the injury, we consider, let's say, uh, uh, the rehabilitation phase at a good point at least. 
So definitely, I think that is a, is a an acceptable solution. It's not the best. There, there's no best instrument. I mean, of course, uh, uh, you have to use properly. That's the other problem. I think most of the uh, of the time you don't use uh, so well the scale because the Baroque scale is an easy scale, but there are some instructions that should be followed. It's not just enough to ask the, the artist to say a number between zero and 10. There are adjectives. You have to show the adjectives before the numbers. And this uh, is needed to, to produce a ratio scale. So it's a more sensitive scale, less influenced, less bias, and things like that. If you say to you, if you ask to the athlete to rate the perceived exertion, uh, you are asking to rate the effort. If you are asking to uh, rate the perceived exertion and you explain the perceived exertion as, for example, uh, tell me uh, if you have pain on the legs or the, your perception of discomfort, you are introducing other concepts, so you are confounding this athlete. So if you want to rate the perception of effort, you have to ask about the effort. If you start to mention pain, they, they will combine pain with exertion, and you don't know if they are really rating pain or they are rating exertion. So if you are using a rehabilitation setting, it's important to differentiate. If you want to have information about the pain, you ask specifically for pain, and that's nothing to do with effort. I mean, it's related sometimes, but not necessarily. If you want to know the effort or the exertion, you have to ask only exertion or effort. Don't mix different constructs. That's important thing, I see. And when you say SRPE, are you just talking about that zero to 10 number, or are you referring to SRPE load? where we take that zero to 10 number and multiply it by the number of minutes? For session RP, I mean the, the combination. So num, uh, minutes multiplied by RP. Okay, so when you say a session RP, that's what you're talking about. So, and you get an arbitrary unit of, of yeah. whatever that is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now with that, so you take that take that number, I think that kind of segues into the training load monitoring and injury risk relationship. So in the rehab world, we're looking at these things as what, can, how can we look at, at these numbers as let's say take SRPE, the progression of SRPE over time or a snapshot of your SRPE now versus what you've done over the past month or something like that. Um, and we're, and we're trying to create narratives in regards to, what is an optimal progression and is that related to injury risk if we progress too quickly or if we spike our workloads up or down or if there's a specific <clears throat> ratio of our <laughs> of our acute work versus our chronic load. So all of that to preface the, the simple question of your thoughts between of the relationship between training load monitoring and injury risk. So I try to be polite, otherwise my my dean will complain. Anyway, uh, it's a hot topic, of course. Um, I just finished to write 500 words to try to explain all the problems related to, to, to the attempts to link training load and injury. Um, basically, if I concentrate on the session RP, or any other indicators, it doesn't matter. There is a, a huge problem. The problem is that we don't have 
a theoretical, a conceptual framework relating the injury risk with the training load. What we have until now are just attempts, uh, trying to fish in the lake of finding something, which is acceptable at the beginning. But now we have, I think, more than 50 papers, and I think it's not acceptable anymore. I'm saying that because if you look at the literature, like I did, so if you read all the papers all together and you read all the methods, you realize how inconsistent are the results. So you can see studies showing that high chronic acute uh, ratio, whatever, in, uh, increase the injury risk. You find other studies showing a decrease in injury risk. You find in the, in the so-called sweet spot that I'm still uh, trying to find anyway, uh, in, 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 that, in those range, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. So people start to say, yeah, but if you combine with the, the chronic load, maybe you see that when the chronic load is high, it's higher or is lower. Basically, I, I just checked the literature. You can always find something and the contrary. So at the moment, the only thing we can say is that it seems there is a relation, but we have no idea about the direction and the strength of this relation. And, and one of the problem is that I still have to find a framework explaining me, explain me why the training load should be related to the injury risk. Because uh, yesterday or two days ago, there was another paper finding a, a relation between uh, um, some matrix uh, using GPS and uh, contact injury. So most of the literature, I would say 99% of the literature was based on the relation with non-contact injury. Now we have a couple of papers showing also a relation with contact injury, which is, in my opinion, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's difficult to understand the reason why the tra high training load or whatever high increase in the training load should be related to contact injury. So what I'm afraid is that we have a sort of random findings at the moment. There's something, but is confounded by too many factors. And one of the problem is that these studies use different methods, different ratios, different categories. Uh, they are really inconsistent. So I can just say that it's possible there is a reason, but it's possible. I, I wouldn't say it's sure there is a, uh, a reason of a connection between training load. I'm saying that because the, the, the matrix that they use for trying to find the relation depends on the framework. Because if I say, okay, the probability is because when I train too much, I increase, let's say, neuromuscular fatigue. And neuromuscular fatigue can increase the injury risk. If I go to read the literature about that, for example, you can find studies showing that the neuromuscular fatigue has nothing to do with the uh, uh, cruciate ligament uh, injuries, for example. So I don't, sometimes even my idea is not supported by the literature, but if I assume that this can be, a, a, can be a, an issue, I, I have to select the training load indicators that in some way reflect this neuromuscular fatigue. So for example, session RP may be not the best way to measure that. I'm not supporting session RP because I 
validated. Uh, I, I never did this kind of study because I couldn't find a relation, uh, conceptually, a relation between these two components. So it's not enough to just see if there's some association statistically significant. It, it makes no sense in my opinion. So just to be polite, I think that we should do uh, a bit better in the future if you want to understand some a link between training load and we need to develop a, a concept a conceptual framework otherwise we, we have in a few years we will have 100 papers and we have still no idea about what kind of relation there may be and that and that's the problem because i know a lot of coaches because the reason why i enter a bit in this issue is because as you can imagine, sometimes there are coaches, trainers that ask an opinion. They call you for some, let's say, meetings, discussing topical issues. And I, they always mention, for example, this uh, acute chronic ratio about 1.5. And I mean, uh, it, it's possible that uh, if you increase too much the training, uh, you increase the injury risk. But that's not always the case first. Second, 1.5 means that you increase uh, 50% the load. I mean, if you are a coach, you don't realize that you are increasing 50% the load compared to four weeks ago, maybe it's better you change job because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always, I, I plan the training, I know what happened. I, I, I'm not, I don't double the load because for some, because I forgot, I don't know, to, to, to consider. So there is always a progression. And if you have an increase above 50%, if uh, ever this increase because there was uh, something you couldn't control, for example, uh, you need to additional training because yeah, or you had to play more, things like that. In any case, there's nothing you can do. So you cannot act on, on this situation. So I, I hope I, I explain a bit my position without being too aggressive but really there is too much confusion confusion about that but it sounds like another problem is it because we have so much uncertainty in regards to variables that we can at least show data that cause injury you mentioned the acl and neuromuscular control we don't have enough variables for you to really work with that are reliable enough to you to for you to create that framework so it's not just that that this research is, is still a little bit behind, but the research in, in injury is still a little bit behind to give you enough variables to make it a viable framework. Is that, am I picking up about the right thing there? No, no, yeah, I understand, but that, I, 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 I agree. What I'm saying is that there is a, a compromise between using a, a very generic, uh, very a lot of very generic matrix and using the best method for measuring some components. I know there are groups working, for example, on injuries in running, and they have developed a quite accurate uh, uh, framework, and they are developing methods to measure what they need to show if the framework works. I'm, I'm referring to Rasmus Nielsen with their RunSafe uh, project, and they have published a framework. They have connected the load that you can have the joint, the, 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 the structure, the imbalance between the structure to, to the potential occurrence of injuries. So they have a framework and they are developing matrix to measure and to check if the framework is good. If we don't have any framework, 
we don't develop or we don't try to select the best meter. We, we just use what we have because we have to be honest. The reason why you find 50 papers on on injuries in top level sport, because this is one of the few areas where you can find a lot of papers on top level, is because the teams commonly collect this kind of information, injury and training load. So these are the data available. So what they do is just you put this data on SPSS or any statistical software and run some analysis. And that's, in my opinion, is not the way to go. So I agree with you, uh, but I think there's, we can, we can develop something better than now. Maybe it's not optimal, it's not the best, but even having a framework and even without measuring uh, all we need, uh, we can do much more. So for example, we can say, okay, don't, we don't uh, use the total distance, for example, and we use, we use just sprinting distance, acceleration, deceleration, because maybe my, in my framework is this kind of activity inducing more fatigue, more neuromuscular fatigue, and so uh, increasing the risk of injury. That's, that's the main point. So I'm not saying that we have all the instruments, but for sure we have, or we can have a better framework for trying to understand what measure we need. Because nowadays, I mean, professional teams, international organization have staff, sponsors, or whatever. We can find a way. The group uh, working on running is trying to find some indicators of load using accelerometers. So there's a way to try to find something. But we need a framework, not just running analysis and analysis. If you read, the, take, I don't know, in... in Select the literature in soccer or basketball and read all together the papers, read well the, the meters and you realize that there's too much confusion. It's not very helpful for you. So it sounds like your point is well made that the current data we have right now, the populations are too heterogeneous. The metrics are too nonspecific. So it's like, Again, it's SRPE is usually what's used, and it's SRPE for cricket, Australian rules, rules football, football, uh, whatever you want with rugby, and and it's not taking into account weight room versus practice, practice with like long duration, low intensity practices, short duration, high intensity practices. It's just lumping everything together and and tracking that as load. And then trying to extrapolate some type of, you know, prospective risk factor in regards to that. And the point that you made earlier was that's fine in the beginning because it at least lets us know that there might be something there. And then now it sounds like your point is now we have to narrow the focus a little bit, ask more specific questions with specific cohorts and more valid specific metrics. Yeah. And that's. Something like, yeah, something like that, because, for example, session RP, uh, the, the sense that we can give to session RP for injury is because there is a sort of uh, accumulated fatigue and this fatigue can induce some sort of alteration in the structure or whatever. That's the very generic uh, idea for using the session RP. But even there, it's quite confusing because there are studies showing that at high and very high session RP, you have a decrease in the low in the injury risk. And a very high acute chronic ratio has a, induce a decrease 
injury rate. So it's it's quite confusing. Is it's, is it true that if I increase too much, is bad or is not? Of course, people say, yeah, but there are a lot of confounders. I agree. If there are so many confounders, maybe it's better to say, okay, don't use that, because until we cannot control the the confounders, because if you are a coach, if I use the study showing that increase in a, in a session RP increase the injury, I will uh, I will decrease the the amount of training. If I use the paper that show there is a protective effect, because one of the paper in soccer of uh, Jasper showed that there is a protective effect. So the more you do, the less injury risk, which is unreasonable actually, but this this is what they show. In that case, I would increase more the load. You understand that it's it's there are these com two completely opposite directions. So it depends on what paper I read and what are my beliefs. Because my impression is that I use the literature based on my beliefs. If I believe that I should increase a lot, I will find for sure papers showing that uh, if I increase the injury risk decrease, for example. The point is, they have to explain me why in some studies high intensity running does not increase the injury risk and acceleration increase. And why another study show exactly the opposite. Because I'm really very confused. That's why I'm saying it's it's time to slow down a bit to do less and better. Would you say too that there are a lot of factors with respect to the specific cohorts that are used? So maybe somebody with a lower or a higher training age would respond to higher SRPE or higher intensity workouts in a different way than somebody with a different training age. The sport might have something to do with that. So do you think that future direction is making sure that we have the specific population that they're homogeneous from those perspectives? Because, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, now um, I anticipate what I'm writing my viewpoint. Actually, what I think is that, uh, and I wrote that years ago because I think we need to run more multicenter studies first. Um, it's it's time to stop to to run these these are case study because I found I find something in my team. I have no idea if this can be applied to other teams. So since we have uh, now we have plenty of this data. Uh, a good thing would be to combine the data of different teams so we can generalize more. That's the first point. Increasing the sample also increase the possibility to control for more confounders. Because if you have, uh, uh, people usually don't, uh, when they read the, the papers, they don't know some methodological issues. For example, the, um, it's not only a question of how many players, it's a question of how many injuries you have in order to model. Because when you use seven categories with maybe 50 injuries or 40 injuries, in, 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 because the study usually categorize uh, the, 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 the chronic or acute or the ratio in categories, this means that for each category you may have two or three injuries. So basically you are trying to find something modeling a bunch of injuries. And uh, people don't realize that the confidence interval of all these uh, studies are, are very large. This means there is a lot of uncertainty. In other words, we don't really even know uh, if these data are, these results are reliable. So basically, I think in the future we need to control for more confounders, as you said, 
because training, history, things like that are important. Most of the time are uh, examined in isolation and not combined with other factors. But to do that, we need huge numbers, we need a framework, and so we need to, to run more multi-center studies. Now, you come from a very interesting background because you've got both the coach, clinical, and research realms within your experience. And obviously for you, training, monitoring training load is, a, is an important thing that you've done with your athletes and in research is the, is the, um, the motive, I guess, more from a performance perspective versus injury risk when you're, I mean, over the years that you've been tracking training load with your teams, have you seen trends that predispose athletes to be at more risk? Or are you just kind of like, well, they got hurt. Let me try to manipulate this variable and see if that has an effect and we'll go forward. But you're not necessarily attempting to create a framework of injury risk stratification with the work that you've done. No, honestly, uh, that's my uh, coach, uh, Alter Ego. I mean, the when you train top level athletes, the performance is the key. If I have to prepare someone for the Olympic Games, I don't want to say I don't care about their health, but the most important part is that they compete and they win possibly that Olympic game. So what I find quite uh, worrying for me is that nowadays with all these issues about training load, I have the, the feeling that we have a lot of athletes under trained. Uh, I think that we should consider that when we train for top level performance, um, we need uh, usually high load. We need to, to stay to play on the edge. I mean, it's, it's not easy. We can work on the risk factors to try to reduce, but we need to take the risk. And I always took the risk. So I cannot tell you if there are, I mean, uh, I can. Of course, I, 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 don't, I didn't increase too much the load. I tried to follow a progression, but this is what usually any coach is doing the last 50 years. I don't know good coaches just increasing the double one week, cutting the double the other week. We follow a progression. We have a tapering week. Uh, we have a, a, a recovery week. Uh, we have recovery sessions. We always try to, to, to control these factors. Uh, so... I, I, I cannot say that I, I found some, I have an experience uh, for which I can identify some training component that can increase the injuries because the same training with one guy was fine and with the other guy was not fine. And this is the individual uh, response to training, which is another important point. So usually I, I focus on performance and I handle the problem when they arrive. As a coach, as a researcher, maybe I would do it the other way around. But when I'm there, I'm a coach. <laughs> it's it's so difficult because I the plausibility of high chronic low high chronic training loads is protective because you're fit. You're more you're more fit for more stress, and so it's plausible to think okay, high chronic training loads are protective. It's also plausible plausible to think high chronic training loads increase your risk of injury because you're pushing capacity, purposely pushing capacity. So 
it's so easy. My mind, I don't when I my mind automatically wants to go to the word or the phrase sweet spot when I talk about that that range. And so I think that's why it's such a uh attractive model to get behind because you can kind of have it both ways. You don't don't train, you don't want to train too little because then you won't be prepared for what you're training for, but you don't want to train too much because then you're beyond your capacity and you're increasing your risk. You want to find that sweet spot. And then take it even further. If we put a ratio to it and a number to it, oh, it's even more attractive. And it, and then that's where I think I've seen some of your, some of your work on this and your thoughts on this is that's when we get a bunch of viewpoint papers and commentaries that are supporting data that's not super, super strong to your point. And the kind of outside uh, realm doesn't really know how to differentiate or is not super up on the on the rigor do you do you feel is this a is this a track that you want to go towards in regards to injury risk or are you more uh attracted to the just keep pushing the performance side of things and injury as much as we don't want it to be this way is more of a retroactive management thing as a, as opposed to being able to give some type of of preventative risk reduction strategy? I think that uh, this kind of studies, I mean, the topic at least is important because what I would like to do is to push my athletes as much as I can, reducing the risk of injury. I don't pretend to to prevent uh, completely, uh, which is another misunderstanding. Uh, I think I have to take the risk uh, because I have to take the risk and I try to reduce this risk. But I know I'm aware that the risk will remain if I want to have an athlete very well prepared. Because uh, sometimes I, I had to, for example, when I was training a mountain bike team, I used the overreaching for having some potential better performance. Overreaching is a high stress. And, and I need that. I need, I need it to to increase the stress induced by the training because I wanted to induce the overreaching because I was I, I, I was uh, um, concentrating on the performance. What I would like to have are, are instruments that allow me to reduce the risk I'm taking, not to cancel the risk. At the moment, I think we don't have this kind of instruments. And uh, when you said that we need a, a load where we can improve the performance reducing the risk, yes, we know. I mean, uh, uh, one of my first topic uh, when I start to work with the others was over over training, over training in professional cyclists was a concern. At the end, we found that was not really a problem because it's very rare, but for sure it was a concern. And but we couldn't find a way to understand what training load uh, was uh, in this sweet spot where you have an increase in the performance and a decrease in the injury risk. I think that that's my feeling. That's not, uh, these two concepts are not compatible. I think that for increasing the performance, I have to accept there is an increase in the risk of injuries. The only thing I think I can do is to work on all the uh, potential risk factors. So. Uh, the, the so-called preventing programs, in my opinion, are important. In this way, I reduce the risk and they can push my athletes close to the limit. But pushing close to the limit, I think, in any case, will increase the, the injury risk. That, that, that's my opinion. Of course, it's an opinion. Uh, I, I don't have 
I cannot motivate this with a literature. I mean, I can motivate whatever you want with a literature. Because if you know, you can, yeah, that's the point. And there are people doing that. Uh, because when the, the results are inconsistent or very, or let's say random, you can always cherry pick something you like and to support your belief. That's, so that's, a, honestly, it's my opinion. I think we, we always have a risk and we have to take this risk and we can just try to reduce the risk. Uh, for we have, in my opinion, coming from uh, the, the, the rehabilitation physiotherapy world, we have good uh, information that can help us in controlling a bit the risk. And this is what we do. But um, we cannot completely prevent the injury. So it's not, you don't get the best of both worlds. You, you choose... Because I mean, even even just exposure to sport, more exposures than not being exposed increases your risk, just because you're more exposed to the to the thing. Um, you take a helmet to the kneecap, and and if you were never on the field, that wouldn't have happened. So yeah, exactly. yeah. so it's it's you're signing off if you're gonna if you're gonna push performance, you are signing off immediately on an increase in risk, just inherent to that situation, and then you can look at these other factors and try to clean up any loose ends as much as possible to reduce, to reduce the risk. It, it, again, it sounds contradictory, but, um, you're trying to increase, you're trying to reduce the increase in risk <laughs> yeah, exactly. to some extent. Exactly. Now, would you say the notion of chronic work, like if the athlete is more fit for longer, if they're, it, let's say they're, peak age, you know, mid twenties, they've never, they don't have an injury history. Um, you're more comfortable pushing them to a specific point in regards to overreaching versus somebody who has an injury history or maybe a lower training age where they haven't really pushed red line as often. Are you looking to try to get some chronic training and fitness in? And then maybe that's a factor that can help to reduce the risk. It's just chronic fitness. Yeah, I mean, uh, even in your example, you see two different, two opposite, uh, opposite perspectives. Because uh, if you have a higher training injury, uh, training history without injury, uh, it's true that uh, maybe you can tolerate more. But in any case, uh, in any case, you accumulate in, in those years more load, and so this can can uh, uh, can be a risk factor by by itself on the other side if you are you have less training history uh, you are not used to this increase in load so on one side can be an advantage but on the other side is not an advantage so uh, to be honest uh, with my athletes I didn't consider the training history but more the let's say the medical history because if they had an injury or if they suffer for some reason, uh, back pain. Uh, I mean, I, I, I used to deadlift with my athletes. I know there are people saying it's not useful, I don't care, I like it. But um, with, with some, they had problems on the back. And so other coaches never wanted them to deadlift. And I tried to deadlift with this guy anyway and they had no problem at all and of course i had we had in the team physiotherapist i had a weightlifter 
a coach, uh, things like that. But this just to say that even if apparently um, with one athlete you wouldn't do some kind of training, I don't follow that that logical uh, approach. Sometimes I try to really individualize, and that's is a trial and error, to be honest. So I don't, I don't, I don't uh, personally. I don't look too much on these factors. I, I see more the medical history and how they react. Uh, if I increase the load and they see they start to have problems, maybe I go down, I change, or things like that. So I I, I use a sort of flexible uh, or, or flexible approach. And to be honest, I think all the coaches I know, very good coaches, they are flexible. They adapt what they do. Otherwise, it would be enough to have a software to develop a program. That's the main difference between a good and bad coach. But that takes thinking. That's hard. I think people, <laughs> you know, people aren't super comfortable with this type of uncertainty. Um, and I think that's also why they gravitate towards something like a number, um, yeah, exactly. you know, and I'm not comfortable with this uncertainty. As we're having this conversation, I'm like, ah, oh, shit. You know, I don't know. And and. It, and it's actually a nice segue because you came out with another piece, you in a, in a in a group of researchers that was titled Unraveling Confusion in Sports Medicine and Sports Science Practice, a Systematic Approach to Using the Best of Research and Practice-Based Evidence to Make a Quality Decision. And it's kind of what we're talking about here. So we have a question. You in the in the piece, you guys used a clinical example of should an athlete with Achilles tendinopathy get PRP? Very simple question. He's got Achilles tendinopathy. What are the treatment options? Oh, PRP is a thing that's happening that people are doing. How do I know if that's a clinical decision worth making? And you guys, basically the point of the paper was you're you teach us how to separate the signal from the noise in regards to the immense quantity of clinical information that's thrown at us. And you actually outline three distinct steps to do so. So can you talk a little bit about your approach and the keys to implementing evidence in order to make quality clinical decisions, Being whether you're an actual healthcare clinician or a coach? How do you appraise all of the literature that's out there? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, when we talk about evidence-based approach, uh, people tend to think that uh, this approach just use the studies and nothing else. And that's probably one of the main uh, misunderstanding because the evidence-based approach use uh, have three components. One is uh, the evidence available. Uh, a second important one is the experience, the clinical experience, and uh, let's say the best clinical practice. And the third one is the, let's say, patient necessity and values. Um, when you, you, you want to deliver, in my opinion, an evidence-based evidence -based treatment, you have to use these three components. In that paper, we address the first one about the evidence. Because the problem is that nowadays we have uh, we are plenty of publications. Um, what usually people do is to show you the publication, as we said before, supporting your ideas. And you can always find a paper supporting your ideas, always. If it's not a, a paper, an experimental paper, you can find an opinion piece or whatever. So the confusion is, uh, is because of this, um, this uh, amount of information. And people, sometimes also the medical staff, have not no knowledge 
for differentiating the different uh, the different sources and different kind of information. So what we suggest is to move first, trying to check and to control the quality of this information. And the quality is not uh, uh, systematic reviews and meta-analysis um, that are always to consider high quality. Because as uh, Claire Arden wrote, uh, the, the quality of a meta-analysis depends on the quality of the papers, including the meta-analysis. Okay. She wrote a nice article, very polite. I said the same in another conference in a more, uh, in my opinion, clear way. Um, not all that brown is chocolate. I mean, sometimes it looks chocolate, but it's not. Because uh, the, 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 there are also biases in, the, in, in, the, in research. So the first step is to control the quality. And the quality means also to control the, the accuracy and the methodology of the studies that have been run on a single topic. When, once you combine all this information, you can provide the first information, for example, to the medical staff saying, I don't know, you know uh, uh, behind this kind of treatment, there are not strong, uh, there's not strong evidence or the evidence available is, not, is of low quality. Uh, after that, it's your, it's anyway your decision. You have the, your clinical expertise, you are, I suppose you are an expert. So you can use this information as you want. Um, we, don't, we cannot force the medical staffs to do something, but we can just provide information, the best information we can, and they use this information to decide what to do. It's, it's like if, uh, as a physiotherapist, you, you, you have a lot of information, you know the literature, you know what to do based on the papers, but you have also your experience. The first point is to understand if what the information you have are reliable and solid. After that, you, you combine with your experience. But the, the, the main point is that we, sh we should help as a, for example, when we work as a scientific consultant for different realities, we should provide unbiased information. That's, the, the, that's basically the, the idea of that, of that paper. So checking the quality, if you look at the schemes we've provided, you have the quality everywhere, because the quality of the information is important. And that's the problem also when we discuss about the, about the, the, the injury training load risk, uh, because the people usually don't check the quality of the papers. Even if you use the, the rest case for checking the quality of the risk of bias, like the Newcastle Ottawa scale, these are scales used for uh, cohort studies, but they don't address very important methodological issues. There are scales for prognostic studies that are much better to understand the quality. So the, 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 the selection of the papers and the rating of the quality is uh, an important step and sometimes is not done properly. So the idea of that of that piece of paper that you mentioned is to um, trying to help uh, people to understand at least the process to arrive to a, a high quality information. High quality information means that, uh, for example, that in that case, uh, you, you, you cannot support with the evidence a treatment. If the doctor wants to use the PRP, it's fine. I mean, we cannot say, but they can say, I do that because there is literature supporting, not the literature do not clearly support 
that practice. It's your choice and you take your responsibility of your choice. That's the point. We have to take the responsibility of what we do. We don't have to, to find, because usually we use the papers as an excuse to justify what we use. No, if there is no evidence, do whatever you want. It's your experience. If you are good, you you will have results. Otherwise, it's your fault. That's that's that, that's the point. I'm trying to simplify a lot the message of, of those papers. Otherwise, uh, I transform this uh, interview in a very technical uh, technical uh, <laughs> um, opinion. Let's say, and probably people don't understand in details. Well, in the paper, you laid it down pretty simply, you and the, the other group. You give three key points to implementing evidence to make quality clinical decisions. The, the first part was what you just said, systematically searching and assessing the quality of the literature. Number two was combining the, the quality literature that you find with quality clinical evidence. And so kind of what, what you've been experiencing compared to what you're reading in the literature, and you're you're appraising that and you're trying to step back from your biases as best as you can. That's hard to do. And then the third piece was considering the feasibility of use in the practical setting. And I think you've had some contention with this before as well with some studies, their their ecological validity or their external validity is very low because the training programs are too far from reality of what you can actually implement clinically. So as a uh, like a young young clinician or a young grad or a young coach as they're listening to this and their brain is going to explode from all the uncertainty that they're hearing. And I know that you've, you've been in the um, teaching setting before and, and what is your response or, or how do you share this information with, with students and young coaches and young clinicians who have to do something, but we have all these hypothetical and theoretical conversations and all this uncertainty, but on Monday, they're going to have a team in front of them that they have to do something. What is your general recommendation just overall? Is it just to just pick a, pick something that you read, try it out and then tinker from there? Just kind of, yeah. I can tell you the suggestion I'm giving also to our research students because that's, that's a, 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 I think is an important point. The first suggestion is that they don't have to transform themselves in, uh, in lab rats. I always say, when you have time, go with some coaches, stay with them, uh, observe how they are training, what they are doing. If you can, train yourself. That's the first point, is to understand what are the practical problems. So the the... The idea that starting from the studies I can develop programs, in my opinion, is wrong because the studies provide you principles, not programs. And that's the be- uh, probably the, the, the worst things you can do is to copy the programs that you see in the papers. I take the idea, take the principle, and use your experience. The problem is that sometimes you don't have the experience. So my suggestion usually is to to build that experience and you can build by training yourself or like I'm doing even now when I can, I go to, to, to watch or to stay or to help uh, fitness coach in any sport because I want to see what they do. That's the, that's the best practice. I mean, I, I, I think that one of the error of sports scientists 
is to think that what the coaches are doing is inherently wrong. I mean, if you look at the results of some of the studies, like uh, about the training load and things like that, respect the progression, uh, I mean, this is, you find everywhere this approach if you are with a good coach. So the, the my suggestion is when you look at the literature, just take the principle. Because if you see a paper showing that uh, training three times a week or two times a week uh, till failure, and you want to use this kind of training for a sprint or a team sport, and you train for eight weeks and you reach failure two, three times a week, I'm sure you will have a, a lot of problems with, this, with these athletes. They will slow down. They, this is very bad, but people working in, in with athletes or sprinters or, or jumpers, whatever, they know that you don't use training to failure every every session. But this, for example, with my with some of my students that are starting there to, to coach, um, I always insist because uh, for experimental reasons, sometimes you have to do that. But these are experimental situations. These not necessarily are the, the, the real life. If I want to induce overreaching over, over with the resistance training, I will have to increase the intensity and volume a lot in a way that is very far from what I do during a training, a normal training. But that's an experimental situation. So they have to be able to differentiate a study using a protocol for creating a phenomenon, because I'm interested in the phenomenon. Uh, if I want to check studies that can help me in the, my practice, I have to select the studies that have ecological validity. And this is something that I have to do by myself. And this is something I can do just if I have experience or, and this is the other point, asking someone with experience. Now I'm designing studies, study on, on, on failure, non-failure and overreaching. And I involve in, in the group uh, a coach who has a lot of experience, he, he trained guys with the world record in the world. So I'm taking his experience. I don't have his experience. I don't have that kind of experience. So one of the problem of the studies is that they don't, uh, uh, researchers think to be able to develop programs, but they are not. They are, they are able to, to uh, create experimental situations, but not proper training programs. It's like the, I don't know if you, if you know the debate about using uh, resisted sprinting with a heavy sled or light sleds. There is now a sort of debate. It's better light or it's better, uh, it's better um, heavy. I, I, I tell you that I, I'm planning a study on that. I will take one year at least. But if I think about those studies, the first thing I was discussing with my colleague is that as a coach, I wouldn't care too much because I use both. Usually, I use both. Usually, I use the heavy. I start with the, the traditional periodization. I mean, I train more maximum strength, and so it's more strength-oriented, and they use heavy sled. As soon as I go close to the competition, I move to more dynamic exercise, so more power training, more parametrics, and more light sleds. So this is a, this is a, a, a typical program. I it's rare to use only one single exercise. Usually we combine. 
Of course, for experimental uh, reasons, I have to control the variable. So sometimes I have to do that. But again, I take the principle. If I see the heavy sled can improve some phases of the sprint and the light, some other phases, of course, I will combine as a coach. I don't, I don't um, think if it's better to improve one phase or the other. I want to improve both. Okay. So these, the ecological validity is one of the main problems we have in, in sports science because, uh, the, 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 because a lot of researchers uh, just design programs without any knowledge of what happened out there. So my suggestion is, as a researcher, stay there, try to understand what they do, ask and help, ask an opinion. Because if tomorrow you ask me to design a study for powerlifting, I'm not, I have no fucking idea how a powerlifting train, a powerlifter train. So I will ask to some of you, uh, people with experience, before designing a study. Because if I, I do something that when you really say, okay, but I will never do that, and no one have ever done this in the, in the last 50 years, would be just a waste of time. Maybe I, I increase my CV, but uh, in terms of practical uh, information, uh, it's, it's close to zero. You can hang out in DC with me whenever you want for the powerlifting stuff, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's interesting. Just, yeah, go ahead, John. Right. It's interesting you mentioned the, the heavy sled and the light sled because with resistance training, we do do a lot of uh, variations within some level of specificity. So, you know, the, the exercise you're working on is sprinting, but you have heavy load, you have light load, you have different rates. Uh, and I think. I think you're right. I think we do try to isolate one particular variation or, or variable and try to say it's superior to one another. Um, you have to be around coaches to see that performance gain and, and kind of live it a little bit um, to fully understand it. Because if you're going to study it, you got to see its practical application as well. Yeah, so. exactly. No, no, that, that's, that's the main point. To be honest, I always try to develop my studies so that they could have a sort of ecological validity. Of course, the ecological validity is also cultural. I mean, training trainings that in Europe are common are not common uh, US. What you do in US probably cannot be done in Europe, but not because it's not useful, because there are also cultural component. And we have to consider that. That's why I'm suggesting and pushing for doing multi-center studies. If we, have, if we need to have an international impact, we, we cannot just study I mean, we can study our country, but we cannot, not necessarily we can apply the same methods to other culture. And that's another important point. We cannot ignore these aspects. And that's why it's better to involve, in, in, in the study I'm designing with a, with a friend, we are involving Europe, uh, South America, and, and, and uh, we are trying to find also US. I want a study with uh, athletes coming from everywhere. We can also study in isolation, single countries maybe, but that's, that's the point. I want you to say something that can be generalized. We, we see that rift in uh, rehab and healthcare as well with between the researchers and the clinicians and clinicians not feeling like the researchers understand what's re, you know feasible in the clinic and researchers thinking that the clinicians are just kind of like, trying everything and seeing what sticks without any type of regard or critical thinking. And I think that we're all trying to find a middle ground now and we're seeing more of the 
clinical researcher who's got some skin in the game in the clinic is now asking, and he was asking questions as a clinician, now answering or trying to answer questions as a researcher. And that's a really powerful uh, combination right there. And I think, and you've got that, you know, I think that's why you can speak on these things, which is, which is pretty cool. You've talked about a few things coming down the pipeline, uh, lots of things on overreaching and fatigue, the, the sled study, all these things. What else do you have coming up, Franco? Um, one of the, we have developed here in, at UTS some research lines, uh, research strategies, and there are different areas. One of the area is um, sports science research quality. Uh, coming back from medical setting, let's say, uh, I have to say that, in my opinion, sports science is a bit behind the, the clinical setting in terms of methodology, in terms of, of quality. We do a lot. There is a, it's plenty of studies. But if I read the studies in terms of methodological approach, uh, most are questionable. And what I learned in 10 years working in clinical setting is exactly that, is that in sports science, sometimes we try to reinvent the wheel, but square. I mean, when I, when I, used, when I used the, now we use questionnaires here. We are running a, a systematic review on the questionnaires used in, in sport. And I can anticipate that with the exclusion of a couple, the other are absolutely not valid never validated, questionable. The, the validation of this questionnaire are three lines in the middle section of the first paper, after which all the researchers use this, the, these questionnaires, uh, just mentioning the first paper using. So it's a validation by use. The more you use, the more valid it, it seems to be the questionnaire. That's just to give you an example. Um, so the, 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 the idea is to try to understand the quality of the studies we are producing in, in our area in this moment and potentially to suggest or to to um, to explain how to uh, conduct better research so our idea is that we need to do less and better that's that's the point the the, the other research line is uh, more on physical activity for let's say health um, with, a, with a colleague, I want to study the role of physical activity and the effects and the implementation strategies of for physical activity in, in a clinical population, in particular a population with a prosthesis. Because the, there are studies running on uh, a physical activity for people with osteoarthritis. Uh, what I would like to do is to investigate what happened after they, they get a prosthesis because sometimes they, they do less because they are afraid about the, uh, that they can consume the, the prosthesis, things like that. Overall, we know that they have higher uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease and things like that. So we would like to have uh, patients with a, uh, with a nice prosthesis, but also that potentially don't die earlier than the others. So that's another research line. And, and the third is the one around the, the sport and high performance. Um, at the moment, I would like to challenge some dogmas. Um, not, I don't know exactly how to do because uh, 
now we have a lot of opinion pieces. So when I came back in sports science, I found tons of opinion pieces, editorials, things like that, and people relying on these opinion pieces. Um, my idea generally is to provide data, but for some opinions, there's no way to provide data because they're just opinions. And this is like if you say two plus two is five, I cannot demonstrate mathematically. I mean, it's wrong, it's simply wrong. So I'm, I'm thinking I will challenge also some dogma. So uh, I'm preparing for writing some opinion pieces to say that at least some dogmas now widespread are questionable, like the worst case scenario, things like that. It's, there are, I mean, I think there are a lot of con conceptual problems. And the reason why they widespread, they are widespread is because they, is like the, the training loaded injury. If I say, is it, it sounds nice, it sounds logical. If I train too much, I get injury. It's so logical that immediately I embrace this idea, okay? And that, it's logical actually, but we are scientists, so we have to understand if this logic always work or not, for example. So these are the 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 area on which I'm I'm going to run the, my next follow uh, future uh, research activity. So when that stuff starts to come out, will you come on the show again and talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, there you, go. you heard them. We got you on there. Witnesses. Yep. Okay. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find you if they want to um, reach out to you, connect with you? Uh, I have a Facebook profile. I opened Twitter a few months ago because uh, I didn't use, but I'm still trying to understand how to use it. And probably I understood how. And yeah, I am also on Instagram, but I don't use a lot. So mainly... Um, Facebook and Twitter. I would say professionally Twitter or by email. It's enough to go to the UTS website and you can find my, my email. And I would say too, you can go on Google Scholar and you can just you can follow Franco's work. You can just, Google Scholar, you can just press on the name of the author and then you can press follow and then get an email notification every time you come out with something new or even if something somebody... Uh, cites your work. So, and then you can also do that on ResearchGate as well. So there are ways. And in fact, in that paper that you, that second piece that we talked about, you guys give practical advice on how to search the literature, different search engines to use, real easy, easy advice. So when, when people are asking about, well, how do I find these research articles and how do I appraise the literature? You've got some good tidbits in there. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. You gave us a lot to think about. Whole lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's I'm what we sorry. wanted. Probably I didn't. I didn't provide answers because. Listen. <laughs> if I mean, if if anybody's coming on a podcast to get all the answers, you know. Uh, yeah. I think we've had enough conversations over the last couple of weeks about uncertainty that we were kind of ready for it. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's okay. Yeah, we have. Uh, you mentioned about the we are we don't like this uncertainty, and I think that the only thing we can do is to to learn to live with this uncertainty, to accept. You can do like me. I, I, my life is a frustration because I'm always 
I, I don't find the answer I want. I, I'm studying 20 years and still I don't find the answer. So it's very frustrating. But I'm starting to accept. That's uh, our limit. It's a limit that we have to accept. The one thing I like that you said earlier when we were discussing the PRP and talking to the medical professionals is if you make that choice, you, you take that responsibility. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really important thing to kind of put out there that, you know, we understand the uncertainty, but those days that you make those choices, you have to take the responsibility for it. And then as we continue to learn and grow, then if we, we took responsibility before for, for being wrong. We can, we can take it now too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm probably going to have an answer though. Okay. Again, thank you so much for being on the show, Franco. We really appreciate it. We thank will. Thank you very much. Yeah, and we'll link all this stuff in in the show notes so people can connect with you and uh, hope to get the get you on the show again. Yeah, absolutely. I got it. Thanks everyone.